Well, ironically, on Mother's Day, we are talking about Father Abraham this morning. Well, there's no Father Abraham without, without Mother Sarah, so we can, we can spin this into a Mother's Day sermon, too. We had a debate one day in seminary about whether or not you had to preach a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day. We were split 50-50. But they, they would say, just don't preach Proverbs 31 because it's like this impossible woman. You know, you don't want the moms going home feeling like, great, I'm such a failure as a mom, you know. You're not failures. We love our moms. We don't tell you enough. But uh, where we're headed with the curriculum, we happen to be on the call of Abram. Nathan called that... Um, preached that last week, and then today it's the covenant God makes with Abraham. And so that's what we'll be covering today. It'll be a two-part sermon, so come back. Don't leave. Don't, don't go anywhere next Sunday. You get the second half next Sunday. And remember, we're in the middle of this goal of understanding better the meta-narrative, the big story of what God is doing in history so that we can better understand the role that we play in the story. Where does our story fit in the real story? Because it is part of our fallen human nature to say, the big story is my story. And then we go to the Bible and say, how can we fit God's little story into my big story? And we've got it wrong. And we do this, even as believers, redeemed believers, we, we have this tendency. It, it looks something a little bit like this, and we've all done this before, we're all guilty of this. Uh, maybe I happen to be feeling, you know... Uh, apathetic about my current job or my current home or the city I live in and feeling dissatisfied and I open my Bible and read about Abraham and God calls Abram and says, go. And you're like, oh, God's speaking to me. He wants me to leave my job to some promised land. Or he wants me to leave my house or my town or good golly, my marriage. And you're like, no, hey, God would never call you to sin. But we're so fixated on what we want right now, and we come to the Bible and we say, what does this have to say about me and my life? Instead of saying, what does this have to say about God and His life and the life I have in and through God, through faith in Christ? As uh, author Francis Chan, Nathan was reminding me of this uh, this week, in his book, Crazy Love, he says, well, we're not really readers anymore. This generation watches movies. And we like to think of life as this great movie instead of this meta-narrative story. But a, a movie is a story, right? And God's obviously the director and even the writer, but I'm the star. He says, no, you're not the star. God's the writer, the director, the producer. He even makes the... The scene, he writes the script, you're like an extra in the background, and I'm like an extra. There he goes. You know, hit pause. If you blink, you're going to miss it. And that makes us feel so insignificant, and 
you know, that just doesn't preach well. We want to hear what, you know, tell me about me, tell me about me. You really need to come to church and hear about God. Because all week long, our residual sin nature will turn the story back about me, back about me, back about me. We need to come Sunday and hear, tell me about God. Tell me about His story. And then, and only then, where do I fit in there? And really, those, those extras in the movie do become significant. They do have an important role to play. In fact, if the extra's in the background waving his arms trying to draw attention to himself, he's going to ruin the story. Our job is to live our lives in such a way that all the focus and glory falls on Jesus Christ and his story. People need to know about him. That is where deliverance and salvation comes from, not from any of us. Our job is to help tell the story God is telling using the, the gifts and the place in history and the place in the world, he has sovereignly put us for a very specific purpose to minister to the people he puts in our lives at just the right time and in just the right way. And when you lean into God being the sovereign director of the story, it's a wonderful life. Fabulous life. You're not kicking at the goads, so to speak. You're not trying to make the story something other than it. I don't like the script. I want to rewrite the script. Don't rewrite the script, people. First of all, you're not going to. It's not going to work. God's going to have His will and His way. He's already written the end of the story, and nothing can change that. Amen. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Good news. God wins in the end. And for those of us in Christ, we're on the winning team with him. It's just they're not carrying us off the field on everyone's shoulders. We have Christ lifted high and exalted. So how then do you come to the Bible and read this story? First, you come and you need to understand that each story in the Bible is within a particular context, a particular setting. And from there you you branch out and realize every context has a bigger context and a bigger context. And the ultimate context is this meta-narrative we've been talking about. And so don't come to the story of Abraham unless you understand everything that's happened in Genesis 1 through 11. Nathan covered that a little last week. I want to go in a little more detail. That's why it's going to be a two-part sermon. I really want you to understand the context So when you get to the story of Abraham, you say, oh, I see what God is doing. I see what God God is doing. There's, there's, There's a plan, there's a purpose that's unfolding. Now Abraham makes sense in this context. Then I can ask, well, what does Abraham's life tell me about God and about Christ? Because this whole story is about God, especially the person of Jesus Christ. Then I can look for transcendent truths. What was true for Abraham is true for us. Not in the sense that, okay, well, God's calling Abraham to go, so he must be calling me to go. Well, if you're going to do that and literally place yourself in the story, you better be prepared for the fact that God told Abraham and Sarah they'd have a baby at age 100. Is that the story you think God is calling you to? Good luck, luck. yeah. And then later, 
he says, now take that baby boy and I want you to put him on an altar and sacrifice him to me. Are you sure you want to play this game of I'll replace myself with Abraham? Now, instead, there's transcendent truths that apply to Abraham that will apply to all of God's followers. Then we can take those transcendent truths, bring them into our modern context, into our life, and, sit and draw our application from that. The problem is we want what we want, and we want to write the application before we do our study. And so we, already, we bring to the Bible our preconceived notions of how we want the Bible to fit in our little story. And it might make you feel happy for a second, but I tell you, on that day when you're doubting, you need something bigger than that. And so you come to church, and you should decrease, and Christ should increase. Amen? Amen. So, my goal today is to get us from Genesis 1 to 12 in such a way that when we talk about the covenant God made with Abraham, you're already saying, well, of course he would make a covenant with Abraham. But if we don't start from the beginning of the Bible, then we're like, what is this covenant business? And what does this have to do with me? And who's this old guy? And why am I reading this? What does this have to say about me and my life? So put that aside today and come to the Word of God and say... If God says it's important for me to know about Abraham, then I need to listen. God, show me what is important about Father Abraham. So I'm going to take us on a jet tour from Genesis 1 through 12. If you're a note taker, there's no way you're going to keep up with me. Um, you could try. It's not intended for you to write you know, uh, copious notes. If you take home one of these kids' activity sheets... All the key verses that I'll mention are down here, and you play a little game with your family over the next two weeks. And the, the game goes like this. Pick a verse. Someone in the family, pick a verse. Look it up. Read it out loud, but don't tell them what chapter in Genesis it comes from. And see if the rest of the family can figure out where it falls in the story. And then, why is that a key verse? I mean, all the verses are important, but why did Pastor Brent single out these particular Verses. So, Genesis chapter 1. What is the first chapter of the Bible about? It sets the scene. Doesn't every story start with, in the beginning, well, a long time ago, and a kingdom far, far away, or in a galaxy far, far away? Right? If you're a Star Wars fan. You have to know where the story is taking place when you open a book. And God's book is no different, except that his setting starts from the very beginning. There was nothing except God, and then there was something. What a story. No other story starts that way. I think no other book has the audacity to start a story that way. So not only do we get the setting, but we get the hero of the story immediately, the main character. By the way, if you haven't figured that out, God is the main character of the Bible. 
is really the people in the Bible are incidental. The story is about God and how he interacts with the people he created. I also, as we do this and take this jet tour through Genesis, want to make some commentary of how the world has kind of lost its way because they've ignored the meta-narrative of the Bible. Every man, whatever religion they are, believer, unbeliever, even atheist, needs to know how everything started. And we call that, or scientists call that, or philosophers, cosmogony. Cosmos, Greek for world. Genesis, the beginning. How do you get the beginning of the universe? And we've been told that they have it figured out, and they call it the Big Bang, that all of matter and energy was in this thing they call the singularity, and it exploded, for lack of a better term, and somehow self-organized into this amazing universe we find ourselves in. Though, once you get past your freshman class, you find out there's actually many competing cosmogenies out there. The Big Bang is the one they give you in high school or your freshman year in college. Um, there's a camp of people that think we live in a multiverse. There's infinite universes, and this just happens to be one of them. Of course, the other camp on the far other extreme is that there is just one universe, but even in that camp they say, well, the universe has been exploding and expanding and then contracting and starting over and over again. So we're just in the middle of some kind of phase here. And so there isn't even agreement among scientists about how the story begins. Um, I love when they were searching for this new particle. It's called the Higgs boson particle. And the multiverse people said, when we find it, it's going to be this wavelength of light. And the single universe people said, no, when we find it, it will be this wavelength. And they built this multi-billion dollar collider in Europe that travels through many different countries just to get these particles spinning faster and faster so they can collide. And when they collide, it would mimic what they think conditions were like when the universe started. And they did find this particle named after a scientist named Peter Higgs. And which wavelength was it? The multiverse wavelength or the single universe wavelength? It was somewhere in between. And God just laughs at us. One commentator said, The history of the Bible when it comes to mankind is merely a record of hubris and failure. I'm like, what is hubris? So I look it up and it's extreme arrogance and overconfidence. Yeah, that sounds like humanity. To have a perfectly plausible and understandable explanation of how everything started and saying, well, no, I don't think so. I think we'll figure that out on our own. Now, it's okay. When we get to 126 and 27, God makes man in his image and he gives us our marching orders and our purpose. He says, have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, God has dominion over everything, does he not? Amen? God is sovereign. But he's made us in his image, and he's given us these abilities to think and reason and problem solve and discover and create and invent and use the creation he designed to do wonderful things. That is this dominion mandate he gave us. Go 
Go create. Go discover. But do it according to the laws I have laid down for you and do it to glorify God, not glorify man. And so it's okay for us as scientists, I don't want to give science a bad rap, to explore and discover and create. But according to God's revelation and for God's glory. And the record of the Bible, once we get past Genesis 3, is man wanting to have dominion on his own terms for his own glory. That's the problem. In Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, the, the naysayers of the Bible say, why do we have a creation account in Genesis 1 and then a completely different creation account in Genesis 2? They just need to read a little more closely. Genesis 1 is the creation of everything, and then Genesis 2 telescopes in and says, now let's look at man and woman, the pinnacle of God's creation. Nothing else in God's creation did God say was made in his image. And so we telescope down in Genesis 2, and in Genesis 2, 7, God forms man... But he is not a living being until God does what? Breathes life into him. And I find this absolutely fascinating as somebody who was a biology major because I know that scientists still don't agree on the definition of life and when life begins. How do you get from non-life molecules to man? Yes, they say it's an evolutionary process, that even the evolutionists can't decide when in that process would we call something a living thing. They have a word for this, abiogenesis. When you stick A on the front of a word, what does that mean? Not or without. Bio, life, genesis, start. How do you get life starting without life? We have the answer. This is not an unsophisticated ancient text. It covers the most fundamental and important questions that anyone could answer or ask. And we're all still searching for the answer, and it's right here under our noses. God breathed life, and life was formed. And because man and woman are made in the image of God, that gives human life special dignity above and beyond all the other created order. There's a hierarchy in God's creation. God created man, put him in a garden, and he said it's not good for man to be alone. And he said when he created man, he said, let us create man in our image. And he created them male and female. God created them. He put man in the garden and he said, tend the garden and name the animals. And if you think about what we do on this earth, it can really be boiled down to those two things. Take God's creation and do stuff with it. Or make discoveries and name it and classify it. Most of my major in biology was just naming and classifying things. It actually got pretty boring after a while. But when you're done, you know the 
official names for things that other people don't, and so they pay you more money because you have the degree and you know what things are called. But all we're doing is what Adam was told to do by God. God could have named everything, but he gave that prerogative to man. Here, I want you to to discover these things I've made already, discover how they work, name and classify, and then take the materials that I've spoken into existence and figure out how to work them together to, to build and invent and create. And so that's what you do all day long. And we do that to the glory of God. And when we do that for the glory of God, He's pleased with us. Think about when your children learn to to build something. Oh, look what he made. Oh, look at that. It's so sweet. You hang it on the refrigerator. So we have these amazing buildings, and and we've put a man on the moon. And um, I've been watching this program with my kids called Generation Earth, and they're chronicling the amazing inventions that have uh, happened in just the last 30 years. Um, China used to only have a couple hundred miles of interstate highway, and now they have over 50,000 miles of interstate highway. They've exceeded our interstate highway system in under 30 years. That's a lot of concrete, man. Um, the skyscrapers they're building, the one in Dubai is, is a half a mile tall, makes the Tower of Babel look like a kid's sandcastle. And yet, it's no different than the Tower of Babel, right? It's man showing off. Look what we can do. It's not to the glory of God. In Genesis 2, we also see in 2.8 um, more about man's purpose. He's told to name, and then he, he says... He's looking at the animals and he says, well, there isn't one here like me. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper. And that leads us to 2.18 where we get this whole concept of complementarianism. That man and woman complement each other. Whereas we're living in an age where man is in rebellion against God and we call it egalitarianism where man and woman should be exactly the same. And if they're not, it's not fair. It's not fair that I got assigned a gender. I should get to choose one. It's not fair that men are better equipped for certain jobs and women, obviously, equipped on Mother's Day for certain jobs. Well, that's not fair. And I'm sure man will spin his wheels for the until the Lord returns, trying to figure out a way for men to be able to have children. They'll think that's a wonderful, novel thing. God made man and woman with equal value, equal worth, different roles. Equal value, equal worth, different roles. And the Bible teaches that man is to lead and sacrificially love his wife. Oh, well, if he's leading, then he's better than me somehow. Oh, wait a minute. The Son, Jesus Christ, only did what the Father commanded him to do. Are you saying Jesus is of less value than God the Father? May it never be. Your role does not determine your value. Our value and worth is determined by the fact that we are created in God's image. 
The animal kingdom has value and worth too, but only in the way that God reveals to us. And we are now seeing our confused culture wanting to give animals the same rights as human beings. This is dangerous territory we are entering, beloved. Our confused world. In Genesis 2.24, we get the definition of marriage, which is completely relevant in this day and age because our Supreme Court just two weeks ago heard oral arguments on redefining marriage. And redefining marriage. And the pundits are saying, probably by five to four decision, they will allow a redefinition of marriage. But the, the definition won't have changed. Because Jesus said... Is it not written that a man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And what God has put together, let no man separate. By definition, man and woman are put together because God said part of the creation mandate for man and woman is to be fruitful and multiply. Only by God's definition of marriage can that creation mandate be fulfilled. Only between the union of a man and woman can children be brought into this world by God's special design. Remember, he could have done it differently, but this is the way God has designed it. It's a beautiful thing. In Genesis 3, we get the fall of man. Every story needs a villain. In comes Satan. You know, if this was a vaudeville act, we'd all say, boo, boo, and he's... he's masquerading as a serpent, a, an animal. And it's supposed to be God having dominion over the universe, delegating authority to man, man delegated authority and sharing the dominion mandate with his wife and the two of them having dominion over the created world. And in Genesis 3, we see the whole thing reversed. An animal comes to the woman, the woman goes to the man, and the man disobeys God. The whole creation order gets turned on its head. And as humanity wants to try to live this way, humanity will be frustrated, exasperated. It will not go well with us. But when we accept and embrace God's design for humanity, then there's peace, there's harmony. God is glorified. I put villain in with the parenthesis S plural, because when the first man fell, the whole human race fell, and we all, by extension, became the villains. So before you're quick to boo and hiss, we have a fallen nature. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath, born into rebellion. We're part of the problem. We're part of the villain um, network. And when we place our faith in Christ, we get to change teams, change families. The conflict, though, it's important in three one. you understand where the conflict started. It wasn't with the act of the rebellion. It was in even contemplating the rebellion. When you doubt God's word, that always leads to problems. That is the root of all the problems. 
God who is perfect, perfectly wise, perfectly good, perfectly just, His Word is perfect truth, to even consider that He got something wrong here is a, is a, a huge problem in the source and root of problem pride. That pride, that human pride, is the root. So in Genesis 3-4, man does eat, woman eats, gives to her husband, he eats. And now they want to have dominion apart from God's headship. You've got to keep track of this dominion theme all through the Bible. This is our mandate, to have dominion over the earth to glorify God. Have dominion over the earth, glorify God. He has the ultimate dominion. He's delegated this authority to us. When man wants to have dominion apart from God, that is the problem. So the solution has to undo that. God is not giving up on his plan. He's not a quitter. He won't let man or Satan thwart his plans. He will have his way. There will be a redeemed humanity that has dominion over the earth in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. And in as much as you and I accept that through faith in Christ and obedience to Christ, that is the story we get to play in the meta narrative. And as long as you are within those boundaries, there is a lot of freedom for you to exercise your God given individuality and giftedness, to be a steward of the little corner of God's creation He's given you to be a steward over. Whether you've got a little track home in town or you've got a whole acre or five acres or ten acres, I don't care how much you've got compared to what God owns, it's nothing. And it's His anyways. But how exciting life is for us who are redeemed that I can have this dominion, be a steward, and on that final day I get to hand it back to God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, because man fell, we get curses. So important you, real, you realize and understand. Most people assume, well, this is where God cursed man and woman. God has not cursed you. Read the text again. He curses the ground and he curses Satan, but he never curses man and woman. He loves us. He's not going to give up on us, but their sin has consequences. Amen? Your children sin, disobey. There's got to be consequences. And now having dominion over the earth is going to be a lot harder than it was. The earth isn't just going to yield its produce very easily. There's an exasperation and a frustration to having dominion now. And this beautiful gift of motherhood, that's going to be difficult. And all God's women said, Amen. The act of bearing the children and, and the raising of the children and even the beautiful complementarian relationship between man and woman will be frustrated. He says, your desire will be for your husband. And that word desire is actually more of a negative word. You'll want to lord it over your husband, but he's going to lord it over you. And so the power struggle in the home has gone on since Genesis 3. And all God's married people say, <laughs> Amen. Highest of highs and sometimes the lowest of lows. 
In Genesis 3.21, man and woman try to cover their sin with fig leaves, but it is not a suitable covering because God said, if you disobey the... What are the wages of sin? Death. But in God's mercy, Adam and Eve didn't die physically that day. They began to die. They got to live another 900 or so years. Um, or is it 600? Help me out. Where's my, where's my Bible trivia people? It's in the 900s. Okay, thank you. But somebody had to die. Something had to die. A living being had to die because of their sin. And we see God covers their sin with animal skins. Must have been an extremely sad thing to see these beautiful animals slaughtered because of their disobedience. I'm an animal lover. It would have just crushed me. And then to have to wear those skins as a reminder of your disobedience. But... As the book of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats can't cover human sin eternally. It's going to take another human being, death, to cover the sins of mankind. So you see the story is all making sense and unfolding. Oh, okay, we see where, I see where this is going. I see how this leads to Jesus. In 3.23, they get banished from the sacred ground, and this is a theme throughout the scriptures as well. Sacred ground, the tabernacle. When Moses approaches the burning bush, shake the dust off your feet. This is sacred ground. The holy of holies, sacred ground. Eventually leading all the way to heaven, which is sacred ground, and Sinners can't be part of that sacred ground. There must be some way to atone for our sins so that we can re-enter paradise. In Genesis 4, the first child, the first Mother's Day, and Eve's excited and she says, the Lord has given, given me a child. We realize all children come from the Lord. It definitely has something to say about the whole pro-life debate, does it not? Children are from the Lord. Who are we to take them away? In 4.3, we see the sacrificial system is in full effect because Cain and Abel have to bring a sacrifice to God. In 4.7, we see that God expects faith and obedience. Cain, whatever he brought to God was unacceptable. And God rejected his offering. And Cain was depressed. And God said, why are you depressed? Do you not know that if you do what's right, it'll go well with you? You'll be happy. Just trust and obey God. The key to happiness. Anyone here searching for happiness today? Trust and obey God. Lean into his ways. Accept them. Embrace them. You will find happiness. He says, I'll accept you just like I accepted your brother. But, here's the warning. Sin is crouching at the door and it, it's desire. There's that word desire. The same word he told Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Same Hebrew word. Your sin's desire will be to master you, but you must master it. You can't give in to that inclination to say, well, I don't care what God wants me to bring him. I'll bring him what I want to bring him, and he'll have to accept my offering the way I bring it. No, 
No, beloved. Trust and obey God. And instead, he says, I can't stand the fact that this brother of mine is accepted by God, and he murders his brother. And God says, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, telling us that to take a human life is a terrible thing. Because man is made in the image of God. Remember in Genesis 3.15, buried in the curses is this promise that the woman's seed someday, which is weird because women have an egg, not a seed, we'll, we'll keep things there. You can explain the rest at home when it's appropriate. Well, how is that possible? How would the woman's seed someday crush Satan's head, but Satan would only bruise the seed's heel? A foreshadowing of the virgin birth of Christ. And you can track this seed all the way through the Bible. And it's one of the ways you can tie the whole story of the Bible together, this seed, this promised hero who will come and make everything right and defeat sin and defeat Satan and defeat death. And all humanity and really all creation is groaning and waiting for this this seed to come. And where's it going to come from? And Well, we can just trace it through the Bible. It's why the New Testament starts with Matthew's genealogy. Hey, here comes the seed. So when Eve has a son, she assumes, here's the seed. They thought the promise was there. And then one brother kills the other one. God curses Cain. It's the first time a human being is cursed in the Bible. And he's cursed eternally. Which tells us that it is possible for God to curse someone eternally. There is such a thing as eternal damnation, eternal punishment. Despite what the universalists want us to believe, despite what Rob Bell wants us to believe. So the seed can't be Cain because he's eternally cursed and Abel's dead. So where's the seed? Remember the Where's Waldo? books in the 90s. Where's the seed? Well, she has another son, Seth, and the seed is in Seth's line. We get to Genesis 5, and it's a whole book of genealogies, and I know when people try to read through the Bible for the first time, they're very excited until they get to Genesis 5. And then it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, but it's there for a reason. It's to trace the seed. Where's the seed now? When we get to Genesis 6, the whole world now is starting to become populated, and then it's a mess. It's just a big mess. And yet there's Noah, and it's not that Noah is perfect, it's that in Genesis 6, 8, it says, Noah found grace in God's eyes, in the eyes of God. The, the Bible's this record of God saying, okay, man made a mess of it again, I'm not giving up on the plan, but I'm going to take a remnant or a person or a specific nation or people, and we're going to kind of restart the project again until eventually the Christ comes 
and he doesn't have to hit the reset button anymore. We can trace the seed through Noah, and Noah comes off the ark. And you get some more key text there, but we get a foreshadowing of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 9, 25-27. Absolutely fascinating. One night, Noah gets a little tipsy. One of his three sons dishonors him. Which one was it? Ham, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Some people say that's why the Jews don't eat ham today. That is not, that is not why they don't eat pork. Yeah, kosher ham. Ham's son's name was Canaan. And Noah put a curse on Ham's line. And he said eventually Shem's sons will displace Ham's or Canaan's sons and their sons will serve Shem's sons. Who are the Shemitic people or the Semitic people? The Jews. The story all makes sense. It's, it, it's there. And to this day, the Shemitic or Semitic people are in the land. They don't have all the land because the land that was promised to them goes all the way to the river Euphrates. In Genesis 10, we get the table of nations. In Genesis 11, man disobeys the creation mandate again. He says, once again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. And they say, no, we're going to stay right here and we're going to glorify man and build this amazing tower as a testimony to man's greatness. And God just says, let's scatter their languages. Now try building. And the people have to scatter, and that is why we have different languages today. And um, my friend who's a linguist over here might have to back me up on this, but I was doing some research, and even linguistics have their own theories about where all the languages came from, and they can't really seem to agree. Maybe they trace all the languages back to some root languages, but once you get there, there's disagreement over where did these root languages come from? Well, we have the answer right here. There was one language, and then God scattered their languages to humble man and force him to fill the earth. Now we get to the call of Abram, and it's not some random story just stuck in the Bible. God's deciding, I still want to fulfill my creation mandate, so now that the nations have spread out over the earth, I'm going to pick one particular man to start a special nation. And what will be special about this nation is I will make a covenant with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and they will reveal to the world what this creation mandate was supposed to look like. Be a model and example to the world of what worship of the true God looks like and the blessing that comes from that. And of course we're sitting here today saying, well, That's kind of Israel, but not really. You're right. They did some things really well and did some things horribly wrong. But we see when God makes this covenant with Abram, he makes a very unique covenant, a covenant that had never been made before. How does God make a covenant with people he knows will fail? 
Covenants are made between two people who want to enter into an agreement, a contract with one another. And the way they did it in the Old Testament is they would cut some animals in half and put the pieces on either side. And the two parties of the covenant would walk through the pieces and all that blood would be kind of pouring in. And it would be a reminder that this is serious stuff. And if you renege on the contract, may what was done to these animals be done to me. And because that's the way man made covenants, Abram, when he's promised by God that you're going to have a son and he's so old, he's like, God, how do I know this is really going to happen? I'm old. My wife's old. God puts him to sleep supernaturally and performs a ceremony that Abram probably had performed many times with other human beings. But because he knows that Abram is a man and can't perfectly keep the covenant Only God walks through the pieces to say, I will be faithful to keep this covenant. And all of this, we understand, points to Christ in the new covenant. How can we be sure that Jesus dying on the cross and us putting our faith and entering into that covenant with God is what will bring us into heaven? Because God is faithful to keep His covenant. And when Christ said, it is finished on the cross, we can be sure that putting our faith in the seed, the chosen one, will eventually get us into that promised land. See, the story isn't really about Abram going to this land. And the book of Hebrews tells us he never actually got to go to the earthly promised land. He had his eyes set on something bigger and better. And that is who we are as Christians. As wonderful as earth is today and as wonderful as having dominion is here in this plot of land, we have our eyes on something eventually much bigger. This celestial, heavenly, eternal, promised land. Next week we're going to look more closely at the covenant. And we're also going to touch on Sodom and Gomorrah. I promise it will be appropriate for young people. In fact, my goal there will be to show you how you talk to your young people about this subject because it is in the news. And they need to hear God's truth on it before the world has their opportunity to tell them how they should feel about that topic. So come back next week. Don't shy away from the tough passages. I'll finish up the Abrahamic Covenant, and and, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are writing the story. It's already written, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. I ask you to forgive me and forgive us for times when we ignore the story are tempted to rewrite the story, are tempted to make ourselves the hero of the story, are tempted to not like the story. Lord, I have experienced great blessing from accepting and embracing and loving your story more than any other. And I pray that those here today would experience that too. That they wouldn't just be 
Christians in name only, but truly followers excited to live out your big story and to tell others about the story. Lord, we understand that mankind doesn't want to hear that they can't write their own story. So give us courage and boldness and grace and the right timing to be able to tell others that they indeed are in the middle of a story that's much bigger than themselves. That it's not something to hate, but something to love and embrace and be excited about. We know that only you, by your Holy Spirit, changing our hearts and their hearts, could make us want to love and embrace your story. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, you would do just that in our own lives, in our children's lives, and all that you give us opportunity to tell the greatest story ever to. Again, bless our our mothers today, Lord. Remind us to, uh, to serve those who serve us. And in so doing, we will bring much glory and honor to your name. Amen.